Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1, please. Luke chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it would be page 1018, 1018 for Luke chapter 1. So we begin to sort of more formally prepare our hearts for the Christmas season. I want to look with you this morning at the angelic announcement to Mary that she would bear a son, the Savior of the world. Mary has suffered both abuse and neglect through the centuries. In response to the unbiblical teachings concerning Mary that have woven their way into the Roman Catholic Church, many in the Protestant Church have ignored Mary. We don't talk about her much, We've kind of avoided all discussions about her altogether. And I think in the process of doing that, we have denied her her rightful place among the heroes of faith. She is an amazing woman. And so this morning, as we look at this text together, we're going to be in Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. Through this rather simple account of God's sovereign choice of Mary to be the mother of Jesus, we are called to emulate her submissive faith. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's a really simple account. It's a very understated account. 
But it is loaded with truth. And it is given to us here by Luke, among other reasons, to impress upon us the kind of faith that we should emulate as we placed faith in this one born to Mary. I want to look with you this morning to begin with at Mary's surprising encounter. A little background here to get us started in the text. We're kind of jumping into the narrative. Beginning here in verse 26. It's, we have a time marker. It says now it's the sixth month. The sixth month. That's a reference to Elizabeth, her relative's pregnancy. It is now in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. You notice back in verse 24. And it says, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She kept herself in seclusion for five months. And it goes on. And then it, the text switches here. The narrative changes direction. And it comes here to the announcement to Mary. And it says it's the sixth month. Down in verse 36, we see it again. She who was called barren is now in her sixth month. So what has happened is that Elizabeth, the relative of Mary, conceived a child six months ago. And now their next phase of God's program is beginning to unfold. That is, the angelic messenger is coming to this one called Mary. It's interesting to see who it is that God sends to give the announcement here in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. This is the same Gabriel that was sent six months before to John or to Zechariah, rather, there to give him the announcement that his wife, Elizabeth, who had been barren and was going to conceive a child and call him John. An angel gave the message, the text tells us. Angels are interesting persons in the Scripture. And they are persons. They have personality. They have intellect, emotion, and will. Directly created by God to fulfill certain purposes that He has for them. They're not a race like Humanity, that is, they don't descend from one ancestor. Each and every angel is a unique creation of God. The word angel means messenger. So this is a messenger of God. There are two kinds of angels in the world. There are good angels and there are evil or fallen angels. The good angels are also known as elect angels. The unique thing about angels, they are spirit beings. They have no body. The unique thing about them is that they are unredeemable. And what that means is that way back in time, somewhere way back there, the angelic realm fell, or at least a portion of it did. Siding with Satan in his rebellion against God, they are the evil angels. For them, there is no salvation. No redemption. No opportunity to be reconciled with their Creator. For the others who did not fall, they are confirmed. They are the elect angels. They are confirmed in their goodness and there is no need of redemption for them. So the angelic race are different than we are in many ways, but not the least of which is there is no redemption for them. Perhaps that's why the Scriptures say they are seeking to look into this redemption that is available to us. It holds great curiosity for them. 
There are only three angels named in the Scriptures. Gabriel is one of them. Michael is the other, and Lucifer the third. Lucifer, when he fell and led his rebellion against God, was renamed Satan. So there are only two good angels named anywhere in the Scripture. And by the way, there are 270 some odd references to angels throughout the Scriptures. They, re- they appear many, many times. Michael is the only angel called an archangel. From the Greek arche, which means first or beginning. He is the, apparently the head of the angelic realm. Michael's responsibilities are that as defender of the nation of Israel and leader of the Lord's armies. And then we encounter Gabriel, the angel here. Gabriel's name means mighty one of God. And he is uniquely God's messenger with regard to the Messiah and the coming kingdom. And so God sends this angel Gabriel to bring a message. It's interesting if we look back, by the way, into the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 8, verses 15 through 22, God sends Gabriel to Daniel in order to interpret a dream that Daniel was having with regard to a ram and a shaggy goat back in Daniel 8. The ram was the kingdom of Medo-Persia. The shaggy goat was the kingdom of Greece. And God sent Gabriel to interpret that dream for Daniel. It had to do with the coming messianic kingdom. In Daniel 9, Gabriel gives Daniel the great prophecy of the 70 weeks. Again, having to do with Messiah's kingdom. Here in Luke chapter 1, he is sent, beginning in verse 8 and following, to Zechariah as he is ministering in the temple to give him a prophecy that his wife, who is barren, is going to give birth to a child. That child is going to be named John, and that child will become the forerunner of Messiah. And then here, he appears to this girl, Mary, to announce that she will give birth to the Messiah. Gabriel has a great job. His job is to... Be God's spokesman about the greatest news imaginable that God is to send forth a Messiah to redeem His people. Notice where this encounter takes place. As I said, it's all a little bit understated for us, but verse 26 again. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, God's messenger regarding Messiah, was sent from God, that is, he's going to speak directly for God, to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Nazareth was, when we say city, we probably got one thing in mind. In most of our minds, Nazareth would not qualify as a city. Population at that time, probably somewhere between 1,600 and 2,000 people. Located in Galilee, which is about 70 miles north of the capital city of Jerusalem, it's on the backwater side of the nation of Israel, in an out-of-the-way place. It is a very unlikely place to go. It is a rural village, really. And that's where God sends His messenger to deliver this amazing prophecy to this woman Mary, you couldn't find a more unlikely place to locate the mother of the Son of God. 
So he is sent by God, verse 26, to Nazareth. To a virgin, it says, verse 27, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So right away, we're introduced to Mary. What do we know about this lady? Well, we know a few things. First, we know she was a virgin. When we hear the word virgin, we think about a woman who has not had sexual relations with a man. And and indeed, that's true. And that was true here. But it means more than that. It speaks of a young girl of marriageable age in Israel. And that, by the way, was approximately 12 to 13 years old. So Mary was probably 12 or 13 years old at the time of the angels coming to her. She never had any sexual contact with a man. And beyond that, verse 27, it says she is engaged or perhaps translated pledged to a man whose name was Joseph. That is, she was legally married in a Jewish sense to this man by the name of Joseph. She was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal was a common Jewish practice whereby a a husband or a husband-to-be would arrange with a father certain terms and conditions for the, for the marriage of his daughter. So the husband-to-be would come to the father and he would make his bargain with him in order to take this daughter as his wife. Roman law kind of had, had some controls around this and And so the minimum age for a girl to be betrothed at this time under Roman law was 12 years old. So Mary was no less, we would think, than 12. For a man, the minimum age to enter into a betrothal arrangement was 14. It's possible Joseph was that young. The betrothal lasted about a year. They would be, it's called here, engaged, but betrothed. That is, they would go through a legal marriage ceremony. There would be an exchange of vows. And there would be an exchange of of, um, something of monetary value, either money or property, called a bride price. It would go to the father of the girl, and it would be his responsibility to hold on to that money for her. These were the days before life insurance. And so holding on to the bride price, it's not that you sold your daughter, by the way. You would hold on to the bride price for her in case one of two things happened. Either the husband-to-be or the husband, the legal husband, somehow was unable to go through with the marriage, the consummation of the marriage. Maybe he would be injured or killed in the year that it took between the the uh, illegal arrangement and the physical consummation of the marriage. So maybe he would be unable to provide for her because of circumstances during that time. Or maybe after they would be married, he perhaps would be killed in an accident out plowing the field or who knows. No life insurance in those days. No social welfare net to come underneath and support her. And so the bride price was her insurance money was her father's responsibility to hold on to that for her in case something went wrong so that he could provide financially for his daughter, who would be a widow at that point. They were apart for a year 
during this betrothal period. Typically, the man would go away and prepare his home to receive his bride. During that year's period, the the girl would remain in her father's house and it was her father's responsibility to protect her purity during that year's time. It was also an opportunity for the husband-to-be to be sure that this girl he was about to marry wasn't somehow secretly pregnant. That he was truly getting a virgin of Israel. They were married in every sense of the word except sexually. The only way a betrothal could be broken was by death or divorce. And if during this period a betrothed girl proved to be sexually unfaithful, then the marriage would be ended in a divorce or possibly even the stoning of this unfaithful girl. So this was a serious arrangement, verse 27, that a 12 or 13 year old girl was now entering into. A virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. And he was of the descendants of David. It's interesting to me that uh, Joseph is introduced here as a descendant of David. Thus that he falls into the royal line of the great Davidic king. And it's interesting to me that 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 is given. And yet Mary's family is not mentioned here at all in this context. And I think that this just highlights her obscurity. The account, what it does is it sets the stage for the encounter that is about to follow. Here is a young girl who lives in a little village. She's a peasant girl living in a little village in the backwater of Israel. And God sends Gabriel to her with an incredible message. What a contrast. What a contrast even in this chapter between Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah. That his wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to a son, right? The angel Gabriel came to Zechariah while he was ministering in the holy place of the temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. Here the announcement that the Messiah is to come comes to a privately to a poor little girl in a little rural village located in Galilee. Dominated by the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. You couldn't find a more obscure place in the Roman Empire for this message to be delivered. The greatest gift ever given, wrapped as it were in plain brown paper. 28, the angels coming into her, it says... Coming into her, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Coming into her, that is, he entered a home or a room. This verb is used 50 times by Luke, and it typically is speaking, in the majority of those times, speaking of an entrance into a room or a home. And so regardless of what you perhaps have thought, it seems to me that the text is telling us that Mary was alone somewhere, probably in a home, maybe off in the corner of the home working somewhere. And the angel Gabriel appears to her. And he says, favored one. Favored one. It's, it's a name. He's addressing her and using that as a name for it. It denotes her as the object of God's special grace. Favored one. 
Literally, one endowed with grace. Someone enriched with grace. Same term is used over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 to speak there about the believer, the, the one who is united with Jesus Christ. They are a favored one. That is that they are endowed with God's grace. The Latin Vulgate translates this, this Greek verb here as full of grace, and that would be a good translation. Hail Mary, full of grace. That's a good translation. As long as you understand that it is a grace which Mary has received, not a grace which Mary is able to bestow. Hail Mary, favored one. She has no claim to worthy status at all. A lowly girl raised from a position of obscurity, chosen by God to have a central place in the salvation history of the world. Hail, favored one. The Lord is with you. This is a statement of promise of support. He is promising support, protection, ministry success, to this young girl. This expression is used, by the way, repeatedly by God in the Scriptures to comfort and assure His people. When He calls them with a task that seems impossible or overwhelming, God communicates that He is with them. That is, that He will strengthen them for the task at hand. He, for whatever it is He has called them to do, He will enable them to do it. Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. This expression, by the way, is used, as I say, in many places. Exodus or Genesis 26, verse 24. When Isaac is being persecuted by the Philistines, they are continuing to uh, stop up his wells, and so he is unable to water his herds. And there in verse 24 of Genesis 26, the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. That is, Isaac, you have been called to carry on the covenant promise to Abraham. I am with you. I will see you through these difficult days. Genesis 28, verse 15, the same terminology is given to Jacob after he fled from his murderous brother Esau. Verse 15 of Genesis 28, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God appears to Moses. Exodus 3, verse 12. He is telling him that, Moses, you need to go back to, to Egypt and you need to deliver your people from the king of Egypt, from Pharaoh. And Moses said, you've got to be kidding me. You must be talking about Aaron. And God says to him in Exodus 3, verse 12, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. That it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. God appeared to Paul while he was in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Paul was... Trembling, the text tells us, afraid as he was called into this hotbed of paganism to plant a church. 
And God appeared to him, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And one that gives me great encouragement, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When God calls a person to an overwhelming, impossible task, He promises His presence with them. I will be with you. I will see you through. I will will empower you to do what you need to do. I will be your strong support. Hail, favorite one. The Lord is with you. Mary would understand the significance of this promise. This would not go over her head, okay? She now knows what he is saying means that she's going to be called to some kind of overwhelming task. But what is it he wants her to do? What is it that God is going to call her to do? Verse 29 says she's troubled by it all, right? But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this must be. Now, it's hard for me, by the way, to imagine that she wouldn't be somewhat unnerved by an angelic visitation. But the text doesn't indicate that at all. Kind of like when your boss calls you up on the phone and says, can you come down to my office for a minute? Right? Even if you haven't done anything wrong, there's a certain sense of... "Eh." (laughs) wonder what he wants. But it's not the angel's presence, evidently, that unnerves her. It's his words to her that she finds so unsettling. It says it kept, she kept pondering. You see that verse 29? She kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. She's turning it over and over in her mind. She's, what is it he wants from me? He's saying, I will be with you. I know that whenever he says that to somebody, he calls them to do something that's, that's impossible, something that's painful, something that's overwhelming, something that, that causes people's knees to knock together. I wonder what he wants from me. What sort of greeting is this? What is God about to do to me? Just imagine the incongruity of it all. The creator God of the universe appears to the most insignificant person you can imagine and says to her, I will be with you. She might imagine she's a little afraid. She's a little afraid. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Literally stop fearing, Mary. Stop fearing, for you have found favor with God. Stop fearing, Mary. Why? Because you have found favor with God. He's going to show His kindness to you. 
what will his kindness be? You're going to give birth to the Messiah. You are going to give birth to the Messiah. Behold, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Gabriel's stunning announcement to her. You shall name him Jesus. From the Hebrew, Yahshua means the Lord is salvation. You shall name him the Lord is salvation. And he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. That's quite a boatload to dump on this poor 12-year-old. Mary, you're going to conceive a son in your womb. Well, okay, yeah, you're right. I'm engaged. You know, I'm betrothed to this man, Joseph. That would be my expectation. Oh, no, 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 Mary. It's going to be different than that. And it's not just going to be any son. You're going to name him Yeshua. The Lord is salvation. But beyond that, Mary, he is going to be the fulfillment of the most amazing prophecy given to your people a thousand years before. God had promised to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever. Gabriel tells Mary that that her son is the one who will fulfill that promise. Son of the Most High. He will receive the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Mary, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. The Savior of Israel. Ruler of the world. Beyond that, Mary... He will be God in human flesh. Mary had to understand this, verse 32. Just by the terminology used, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Later on, He says that He will be called, verse 35, the end, the Son of God. Gabriel is using terminology here that Mary could not have missed. There's no way she could have missed this. Gabriel is saying her Son will be divine. Son of the Most High. That's just another name for Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in Semitic thought of the day, when to say someone was the son of was to say he was the carbon copy of. That's being communicated by that. He is the carbon copy of his father. He will be the carbon copy of Yahweh. When you talk about someone in the Bible... In that Hebrew thought of that day, being a son of, you're talking about someone who shares the qualities of his father. Psalm 89, verse 22. It speaks of a wicked person, and they're called son of wickedness. It doesn't mean wickedness was their father. What it means is that they share all the essential characteristics of wickedness. They're a carbon copy of wickedness. Son of the Most High, Son of God, He will be God. Mary says to the angel, How can this be? How can this be since I am 
a virgin. Again, so understated. You would think she would be completely surprised that Messiah was going to come through her. That in and of itself ought to shock her. His coming had long before been predicted by the prophets. It was the hope of every godly Jewish young woman that she would be chosen to deliver Messiah. Her puzzlement about all of this is that she's a virgin. How could she conceive a child? I'm a virgin. That tells us that she, at this point, she's not thinking about union with Joseph, right? She's understanding what the angel is telling her is that she is going to conceive somehow in her womb God Himself. She's going to conceive a child without the intervention of man. Some people wonder at this point why God doesn't rebuke her for her question. How can this be? Since I am a virgin. I mean, when Zechariah earlier questioned Gabriel, right? Gabriel struck him dumb. He couldn't speak, right? He said, for questioning me, I am Gabriel, right? Verse 19, who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. No tolerance for, Ga- for uh, Zechariah. How come Mary is not rebuked for her question? I think the answer lies in the motive that stands behind the two questions. Mary wants just an explanation. She she's, uh, doesn't know how the biology works. She's asking a question about biology. Zechariah was... Asking a question with regard to uh, or spoken out of unbelief that this indeed could come true. And he's rebuked in verse 24, that unbelief. You look over to verse 45, you see Mary is commended for her belief. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment that would have been spoken to her by the Lord. The reason Mary is not rebuked, I'm persuaded, is that she demonstrates complete faith. She doesn't quite understand the mechanics of it all, but she demonstrates complete faith in the God who has made this announcement. Zechariah is not so sure. How can this be? Since I am a virgin. Answer, verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Offspring shall be called the Son of God. Do you understand? It's an amazing explanation, isn't it? Oh, I get it. No, you don't. (laughs) You don't get it at all. He uses what's known here as synonymous parallelism. When he says the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High, you see that, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High. He's speaking of one. And so when he says will come upon you, will overshadow you, that's the same event. So what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit will 
overshadow you, will somehow come upon you and you will conceive. That's the answer. How was Jesus conceived in Mary's womb? Answer? The Holy Spirit of God came upon her and she conceived. This kind of terminology, come upon you or overshadow you, it brings to mind the Shekinah glory of God, right? The Shekinah glory of God which descended upon the tabernacle, right? Overshadowed the tabernacle. Same verb is used, by the way, in Luke chapter 9, verse 34, of the glory cloud that appeared at the transfiguration. They kind of overshadowed them there at the transfiguration. The Holy Spirit of God, the, the one who exercised His power to create at the very beginning, Genesis 1-2, is the one who will create in this unique circumstance. We're talking about a divine mystery. We're talking about something that's really impenetrable by the human mind. The Incarnation, the second person of the triune Godhead, took to Himself human flesh and stepped into space and time. That's easy to say. That's really hard to wrap your mind around. He who is eternally God added to Himself a human nature with all of its limitations with all of its weaknesses, yet without sin. In one person, two natures are brought together. In the words of the ancient Chalcedonian formula, without confusion, without division, without change or separation, all the church has ever, the greatest theological minds that the church has ever been able to do is draw some fences around the incarnation and say, you can go this far, but no further. No one can explain such an amazing mystery. There are many who are troubled as they try to think about how can God be totally sovereign in the salvation of an individual. Completely sovereign. And that is that unless they are elect before the foundation of the world, they will not come to faith in Christ. And yet at the same time, He requires people to believe. He implores people to come to place their trust in Christ. How does all of that work? And people get all twisted up on that. Tell you what, why don't you just work out the mystery of the Incarnation first. And once you've got that resolved, then you can go over and tackle this other one. The answer is we don't know. We only know what the Scripture tells us is true. And by faith, we cling to it. The words of John Calvin, teach your mouth to say, I do not know. We do not know. There are many, many unanswered questions. But notice how Mary responds. She's satisfied. All the unanswered questions still sitting there and she's satisfied. She doesn't probe any further. She doesn't come back and say, yeah, but what about this? Or how about that? 
She asks her question. She receives her answer. She humbles her heart. And she follows. We don't need to know everything in order to believe and follow God. What's necessary is that we believe and submit to that which we do know. And that takes us to Mary's submissive response. Verses 36 and following. Behold, the angel says, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her own age. And she who was now who was called barren is now in her sixth month for nothing will be impossible with God. What is that there for? He's giving her a sign. He gives Mary a sign, a confirming sign for her. The amazing thing is she's not asking for one, right? She doesn't need a sign. She doesn't ask for a sign. But God gives her one anyway. The sign is, is that your, your old relative, or a relative who is old and has been barren, that is, has never conceived, is now in her sixth month of pregnancy, which tells us, by the way, that Mary didn't know that, which makes sense because earlier it said that she had kept herself secluded for five months. So nobody knows that old great aunt Elizabeth is now going to have a baby. And that's your sign, Mary, that you will know that what you have just been told is going to come true. Ponder Elizabeth's pregnancy. And that will confirm what you've just been told. For nothing is impossible with God. God will do as He wishes to do including bringing a child to a lady in her old age, as well as bringing his Messiah into the world without the help of Joseph or any other man. Verse 38, Mary said to him, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Response is one of complete submission. Complete submission. She is the slave, she says, of God. Dule in the Greek, it means bond slave or maid servant. One who does their master's will. It, com- it, it denotes complete submission, complete obedience. When a, when a master speaks, a slave says, yes, right? The master says, jump. The slave says, how high? Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. Mary, what are you saying? Let it be done to me. That is, let me become pregnant right now. Twelve years old. Betrothed to a man named Joseph. Before we are married. Before we have come together. Mary, what are you signing up for? It's going to end your life as you know it. Your life, Mary, will change from this point forward as you know it. It will never be the same. You are going to suffer for your faith. 
Be it done to me according to Your Word. I'm ready to suffer, Lord, for You. I'm ready to suffer. I mean, at best, it's going to expose her to ridicule and painful criticism, right? That's the best case of what's going to happen. At worst, according to Deuteronomy 22, she's subject to stoning. Now, stoning was not common in that day and age for this offense, particularly in the sophisticated parts of the country like Jerusalem. But you've got to remember, where is Mary living? She's living in the rural section, the part long separated from the sophisticates. The place where they tend to take things like this more serious. The place where there's no Roman soldiers around to break up a mob who might just get so agitated they'd grab a stone and stone her. I don't think Mary can say to herself at all that I'm not going to suffer for this and maybe even die. Surely her mother and father are going to find this story impossible to believe. Mom and Dad, I'm pregnant. What do you mean you're pregnant? I'm pregnant. And I'm still a virgin. How are they going to believe that? Matthew tells us Joseph was so troubled by it. He didn't know what to do. I mean, we have the story, right? So we know the ending of the story. And so we don't feel the drama of it as much. We understand she has signed up. She has turned over her life into the hands of God. Do with me what you will. I'm willing to die if it's necessary. She puts herself at the complete disposal of the God she loves. And in the process, she receives the blessing that only He can bestow. She truly is blessed among women. Her faith is simple. Her faith is humble. Her faith is trusting. And her faith is obedient. She is a model of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Luke didn't include this story just to satisfy some curiosity. I mean, if he had, he didn't do such a great job of it, right? He leaves a lot unanswered. He includes this here so at the very beginning of his gospel account so that you might know what it means to follow her child. To emulate her faith. Do you have faith in Christ? What kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? How would you respond if God were to intervene in your life? Change the circumstances? Alter the direction? Just come right out of left field and hit you broadside. You think you're going here? You think you're going to do this? No, let me tell you where I want you to go and what it is I want you to do. What if He comes to you and wants you to, to do something that's going to bring intense heartache into your life? How would you respond? 
Go talk to Aaron. <laughs> Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. What kind of faith in Christ do you have this Christmas? Maybe you don't have any faith at all. Maybe you don't know this one. The God-man. Who left the throne rooms of glory to step into space and time. To take to Himself human flesh. To live and walk among us. To suffer the temptations that we suffer yet without sin. To be innocent and pure and undefiled and yet go to a gruesome Roman cross carrying with Him the sin of His people. The Bible says you can have life. You can have it abundantly. If you will exercise Mary's kind of faith, in the crucified and resurrected One. Are you right with God this Christmas? Do you know the Savior? You can know Him today. You can know Him today. Right where you are, you call out to Him, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. After the service, we'll have some folks standing over here by this lighted cross. They'll be there that they might encourage you, pray with you and for you, open the Bible together with you, answer questions that you maybe have. We want you to know the Christ. Not a child born in humble circumstances. That is true, but that's, that's only the beginning of the message. He was born to die. Will you receive Him? Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You for Mary. I thank You, Lord, for this godly young woman whose faith and confidence in You was so strong that she would place herself totally in Your hands and that You would, through her, bring the Christ into this world. But I thank You even more for the gift of Jesus. Amazing as Mary's is as a person and her faith, is all about the gift. She believed in God, her Savior. Our Father, may You help us to believe as well. We pray in the name and for the glory of Christ. Amen.